Hello and welcome to the Emeroy Digest podcast. Uh, I am your host, Shumobi Neme. Uh, I also have Dr. Jason Brown with me as well. Um, for this episode, we're going to be covering the ACG clinical guideline diagnosis and management of idiosyncratic drug induced liver injury. And with us, we have a very, very special guest. Um, so these guidelines are, are hefty. Okay. These are, you know, this is, they're meaty. So I think really thankful for um, co-fellow Tina and uh, Anudeep who helped really condense these into a visual abstract. So if you, if you have it with you, pull it up, it, it might be helpful. I, Jason, do you have any other um, recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, I'm very thankful for their work on, on the visual abstract. So if you've got that uh, handy, take a look at it while we're going through. Um, otherwise, if you've got a PDF or a hard copy of the paper, Table 1 is really going to give the structure to this conversation. So have it handy um, to keep track of where we are, and let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Emeroid Digest podcast. Um, I'm really glad you guys could tune in and take a listen today. Uh, we have a really special guest uh, who is actually our second Emory University alum on the show. Uh, it's Dr. Naga Chalasani. Uh, so he really needs no introduction to the podcast, but he deserves one. So, uh, so Dr. Chalasani has been crucial in aiding our understanding of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and drug-induced liver injury. Uh, he has been continuously funded by the NIH since 1999. Uh, he's published over 260 original papers, three practice guidelines, uh, 47 book chapters and review articles, 31 editorials and commentaries, uh, and over 500 abstracts. Uh, he is an elected member of the American Society of Clinical Investigation and the American Association of Physicians. And uh, as I said, I guess in the beginning, last but not least, he is a former graduate of Emory University. And uh, we're really excited to have him on the show. Thank you for being here. I'm pleased to be here. And I'm particularly pleased to be doing this with you folks from Emory. That's where my journey started. Um, after I finished medical school in India, I landed in Atlanta for my residency. And uh, my, when I was a, I think maybe in my first or second month, I was on GI and Dr. Thomas Boyer, who is sort of the uh, luminary, and he had this textbook, Zeckman Boyer. He was my attending at the time that sort of piqued my interest in liver disease. I uh, probably may or may not know Dr. John Galambos. He was sort of prior to uh, Dr. Boyer. He was uh, at Emory for a length of time, and he was a pioneer in alcoholic liver disease. He was still practicing at the time. And uh, during my rotations at Grady, I worked with Dr. Melville Cox, you know, who later was at Birmingham. Uh, UAB as a division chief for a good 20 years, really sort of my early mentor. Yeah. And uh, that's where really I got uh, the academic bug, um, especially hepatology. Uh, back then, Emory was the headquarters for shunt surgery, portal mm -hmm. hypertension. Some of you may know the uh, call, what's called the distal renal shunt, Warren shunt. Dean Warren was chair of surgery at Emory. We were talking 80s. And... Uh, so folks at Emory were really quite familiar with portal hypertension. That's sort of where I started. Then I came. Uh, so Tom Boyer, Mel Wilcox were sort of my early mentors. And uh, that's where I got the bug to write. You know, Mel Wilcox in particular was uh, instrumental in my writing skills. And then also just enjoying publishing and asking the, sort of the research questions. Was that something that you you had an interest in when you started in medicine or, or was it their personality or their careers that made you catch the bug or a little bit of all of that? 
You know, interesting, when I was a resident and a fellow, my brother, my older brother was a resident and fellow as well. He actually was the brighter one. He did cardiology interventional with Willis Hurst and Dr. Hurst was still alive at the time. Yeah. We would actually see him on the floors in his long coat. And uh, interestingly, he would get confused between me and my brother. <laughs> <laughs> he would ask me about the vectors and I just mumble some <laughs> vectors, but uh, um, he was the smarter one, you know, uh, he went into practice, but I, I just think I was just inspired by uh, just the abstracts, publishing, there was just a local competition, mm. I'm not sure if it's still there at the time a residency program at a, a research competition you know we were just competing to submit number of case reports etc i think there was also a acp may have had a statewide program that we would compete i, I think it was just really is uh, i would say the environment mentors just my own traits i think all vectors sort of pointing in the right direction but um, yeah early successes you know, by the time I think I graduated, I may have had 20 papers. Wow. And I think it is just the uh, uh, the mentors and, and uh, the, the clinical material that's there at Emory. Now thinking about these relationships from the opposite end of the table, when you have medical students, residents, fellows, junior faculty coming to you for mentorship, what is a successful mentee look like somebody that <clears throat> what kind of traits do they have how do they approach you how do they keep up with you um somebody that you like to mentee what, what does that look like to you you know um i mean it just comes down to just the raw desire to be successful and that i think is uh right now my own liberal research group has 10 pis uh, and at least seven of them are sort of have grown up here. In particular, Dr. Lamert was my, maybe in my third year medical student. And then I mentored him through to, um, he did residency at Emory, then he did fellowship at Mayo, he's back, he's finishing up his K. And then, you know, the full circle, he's actually meant, he's the mentor for our son, who is sort of a pre-med. So, it's just been great joy. Um, a good mentor-mentee relationship is one that's mutually beneficial. Like, you know, uh, it has to be more than papers. I mean, you know, when you, I just finished talking to this afternoon with one of my junior faculty members who is, uh, has a K-23 and I'm a primary mentor. After the meeting, it's just a sheer pleasure just going over what, what she's doing and how far we've come. That is what I call sort of the joy of, uh, of uh, mentoring too. So that's really, you know, what excites me is somebody who's sort of very driven to succeed and I can play my part uh, for their success. That's a, if I may, a beautiful description. I appreciate that insight. And I think that's helpful to those listeners who are young in their career and, and trying to figure out how to position themselves um, and how to approach things. So thank you. You know, an area that I have grown as a mentor over the course of last, you know, 20, 25 years is, um, you know, growing empathy in this relationship. Early on, it was just all deadline driven, you know, there's a chapter due, therefore you must do it. If not, therefore, you know, Chalasani gets angry. Mm -hmm. uh, that's no longer the case. If somebody's behind trying to understand, there are lives behind, right? For every, behind every mentee, there is a life. You know, their children, you know, their cars break down, <laughs> their parents get sick, etc. Yeah. Uh, that's been, if you had asked me where I've grown as a mentor, that's where that's just sort of the, the empathy part. Now it's sort of a true relationship just between two human beings rather than just a mentor, mentee, and then also just less power gradient than, you know, early on that you would have. Do you feel like that potentiates the relationship and the, and the efficacy of the relationship and the results in production from the relationship? 
I mean, I, I think though, um, it is just, it, it is the dignity of the relationship between two human beings. Mm. You know, end of the day, this has to be about that, right? You know, yeah, we want to have scientific achievements and all those sort of stuff, but end of the day, after a meeting is done, you both have to feel good that this, you know, so I absolutely, I think that to me at this stage is that's really was the joy uh, of these, you know, deep relationships. And, you know, my former mentees, I mean, you know, they send me handwritten cards every Christmas time. I, I greatly enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And right. even my wife reads some, you know, because they're just so meaningful and impactful. Their kids grow up and it, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's, very enriching, I must say, you know, and I do the same to my mentors. I stay in touch with Dr. Wilcox and uh, you probably don't remember Dr. Pat Baring he used to be at, at Emory, who is now in private practice and he was an esophagus specialist uh, at the time. So, Jim, I, I, I could take the whole hour just picking his brain on this. Do you want to? But we have a paper to get to. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, let's jump to it. Um, so I guess before we get to the 2021 uh, guidelines, because this, you know, this paper isn't the first, you know, iteration, I guess, looking at idiosyncratic uh, drug-induced liver injury. Uh, there were, I guess, I guess maybe the, the first one or the earlier version was 2014. Um, so I guess I'm curious, um, you know, uh, I guess why an update when you guys did choose to, to write this update, I guess, in you know, early 2021, like what did, what had changed that was the impetus to sort of write these? I mean, the decision to update was not mine. That came from from the American College of Gastroenterology. So what I can tell you why an update is justified. I think we have new uh, causes of drug liver, drug-induced liver injury. And I think we are just, we have better understanding Although it's not in this practice guideline, we just have we have better understanding of, for example, HLA risk factors for certain compounds, and I think there is higher with higher resolution about certain types, certain patterns of liver injury outcomes. You know, there is a new model that's been developed, and uh, more importantly, I think we're just seeing more and more uh, cases of. Uh, liver injury due to dietary supplements. And I, 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 uh, I think there's been, you know, some developments compared to 2014. So yeah. I think it's over the course of seven, eight years or so. So yeah, nice. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, we can we can definitely jump to them. So, you know, I guess I just want to say from the outset, you know, these these are not um, these, these guidelines are hefty, or this guideline was pretty hefty. So we're not going to be able to touch on everything in in there, you know, in the time that we have. But I do want to jump on some of the more, you know, clinically relevant points. Um, so I guess maybe just to, I guess, clarify for our listeners, you know, when we when you when you guys say, you know, idiosyncratic drug induced liver injury, you know, versus like maybe run of the mill or intrinsic drug uh, drug induced liver injury what's the distinction there like what is the how do you differentiate the two no that that's uh, a basic question so intrinsic drug-induced liver injury basically means the compound is intrinsically hepatotoxic if you just give enough of it you know the prototype is acetaminophen you just you give 40 grams of uh, acetaminophen most people will get liver injury there are animal models to it. It tends to have short uh, uh, latency, whereas idiosyncratic is it's unpredictable. It is idiosyncratic. You know, it happens in the order of uh, one in you know ten thousand to one in hundred thousand, maybe one in million, depending on uh, what compound you're talking about. But generally speaking, there is not a great dose relationship. In other words, if you overdose on amoxicillin clavulanic acid, you're not going to get dilly. It's not, it's not so, uh, but there is a dose relationship across idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury. We can touch on it, but within a compound, you can OD to get, you know, idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury. And also the, um, 
there are, there are animal models for intrinsic, uh, whereas there are no animal models for idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury. Therefore, it becomes very hard to predict in clinical practice or post, once the compound is approved, who is going to get uh, this type of liver injury. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, one of the things I really like about this paper is um, is figure one. Um, you know, hopefully if, you know, listeners are pulling out the paper, they can see it, but um, it really nicely goes through exactly how, you know, you go from elevated liver enzymes to actually making the diagnosis of, you know, idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury. Liver injury. Um, so I guess I'll just like, I think I'll use this sort of as a guide for our sort of our talk here. Um, what's interesting to me though, is that, you know, I think usually in the clinical context, we kind of, we, you know, we already start with labs, you know, when the, when the consult team calls us and they say, oh, hey, you know, we have this guy with elevated LFTs and we don't know what's going on. Um, you know, so I, I guess, um, how do you, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, like when you, maybe we'll start with like, maybe the, you know, like the, the H&P um, for patients. Let's say, in a patient who has like hepatocellular liver injury, um, I guess what are the key questions that you can't miss like before you leave the room with a patient who has a you know hepatocellular liver injury? You know, so couple couple high level comments first. One is a Drug-induced liver injury can mimic as any form of liver disease presentation. That's one. That means DILI can be acute liver injury, acute hepatitis, asymptomatic increases in aminotransferases, chronic hepatitis, nodular regenerative hyperplasia, peliosis, cirrhosis, just name it, or autoimmune hepatitis. So what does that mean? That means that any patient that you see you have to think, you have to keep in mind is this DILI? That's one. Number two is DILI is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to exclude X, Y, Z before you arrive at the diagnosis of DILI. Therefore, I think, you know, um, it would not be, an, you know, an, an exaggeration in your office, in your room where you see your patients put a little thing, pamphlet to say drug history, you know, get drug history, you know, that's, um, so where I go, you know, a thing that I've learned is um, asking very specifically uh, drug history. When in doubt, I even have my medical assistant call the pharmacy to get the prescription history and then also herbal and dietary supplements. You know, um, I just saw a patient on Tuesday. When I first started the interview, the patient just told me that he was taking one medicine. By the time I finished my my visit, ended up being four. Hmm. Wow. And all four prescription medications. And just, you know, patients just don't remember. So you just really have to probe. And the yeah. dietary supplements, the same thing. It doesn't even occur to them that they have to report, for example, you know, curcumin or whatever. So you just have to ask very probing questions. Those are sort of the three things. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. It can mimic any liver disease. Third is thorough and probing history of medications and dietary supplements. You mentioned um, sometimes calling the pharmacy, which I think is a great idea and, and underutilized. How often would you say you get substantiating um, comments from the family how often would you call a family and say hey can we quickly go through what's in the pantry or what's in the medicine cabinet because um, sometimes again patients like you said may not know that a dietary supplement or something quote-unquote organic or natural that they bought online would even qualify as something the way i like to tell patients is anything you put in your mouth we need to know about but how often do you find you need to push beyond the patient you know that we have had successes on inpatient side, unexplained acute liver failure, where we told the family to go to the medicine cabinet, everything that they that they have, especially somebody who sort of come in with lethargy and they're encephalopathic, 
And then when I give my talks, there is one slide where I show a sort of an 80-year-old came with encephalopathy family when we asked the same thing, which you said they brought literally just a, a suitcase full, 80 different, some 70 to 80 different supplements that they were taking. So I think it's more so happens on the inpatient side. Um, outpatient side, I think sometimes we just needed to go to pharmacy. You know, uh, especially the medical records were not complete and, and the patients did not remember what they were taking. So I wanted to ask, a, you know, uh, specifically about some of these herbal and dietary supplements. Uh, and I guess maybe if you know about any new ones that clinicians should be worried about or look out for that we could particularly ask for in our like visits. Yeah, so two big categories are weight loss supplements and the bodybuilding. And they both sort of have a rather classic signature. Weight loss supplements are sort of the prototypes that people know are the, like the Herbalife, Oxy Elite Pro. Um, and they tend to be hepatocellular and they are the ones that can cause acute liver failure and needing liver transplant, et cetera. And in that category, your new one is curcumin. This is sort of the Indian spice. And Curcumin, there's been a lot of interest to study curcumin for a number of things because it's a very potent anti-apoptotic and anti antioxidant, but it has very little bioavailability. So if you eat curcumin, you know, uh, uh, high strength, high potency, nothing gets absorbed, except within the last four or five years, we are starting to see these hepatocellular mixed cases of liver injury. And I think what's happening is that the uh, the companies that make these supplements are now have figured out how to make curcumin more bioavailable. And so if you put curcumin with black pepper, seems like it gets absorbed. Now, all of a sudden, now you have therapeutic do toxic doses of curcumin in your system. At the most recent ACG meeting, there were at least three separate posters talking about curcumin causing acute liver injury. And uh, I think we in the Drug Induced Liver Injury Network, we may have about five or six cases as well. That's one that uh, one should watch out. And another one, though, is green tea extract. This is not just the green tea that we sip, but if you take green tea extract, this is also people take for weight loss. And that tends to be a hepatocellular injury as well. That is related to a particular type of HLA, I think HLA-B1501. Uh, so, um, yeah, a lot of, you know, so if you have unexplained hepatocellular injury, I think probing about green tea extract is a really good, good thing. And then coming back to body supplements, you know, uh, it tends to be generally a very cholestatic, bilirubin is high, Ogfos is not, may or may not be as high, uh, but they have tremendous itching, of course, deeply jaundiced. And when you do a liver biopsy, you just see bland cholestasis. You don't see duct loss you know, or ductopenia. And one thing you find is that um, oftentimes these bodybuilders are just taking very heavy doses. There just may be an excess dose there as well. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to look at if there are any genetic risks for this anabolic steroid-related drug-induced liver injury, and we have not been able to find it. But that's another one you see. And in those instances, patients may remain jaundiced for almost uh, up to 18 months. Sometimes they just kind of tremendous itching. Um, so those are sort of the two broad categories, you know, weight loss supplements and bodybuilding uh, agents. Yeah. And I guess you briefly touched on like um, this drug drug induced liver injury network um, that you have. Um, I guess I'm curious if you could just, the, the guidelines reference it a few different times. If you could sort of explain like what is it and how is it helpful uh, for clinicians and monitoring the frequency of these uh, events? Sure. You know, so drug-induced liver injury network, also called Dillon, is sort of an NIH consortium that's been in place since 2003. And right now it has six centers, uh, including one at IU. And the closest to you at Emory is probably University of North Carolina and University of Michigan, Mount Sinai, Einstein, and University of Southern California. 
Duke is the data coordinating center. That's really where most of clinical research in Delhi is happening in the US through this drug-induced liver injury network. And this is sort of a five-year grants that you apply and, and get funded. An important, so a lot of literature has come from Dillon. You know, for example, a lot of the material in these two practice guidelines is based on some of the papers published by uh, the Drug Induced Liver Injury Network. An important, very important offshoot is the liver tox. Um, liver tox is an incredible uh, web-based resource put together by Dr. Hoofnagel from the NIDDK, but a lot of participation from Dylan. And as you know, he has uh, an unbiased description of drug-induced liver injury due to more than 1,000 compounds. And it is sort of highly regarded. Now it's taken over by the National Library of Medicine. But for clinicians, really, national, uh, the liver tox is sort of the uh, great source of truth. Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely a place where fellows like myself spend <laughs> lots of time on the inpatient service sort of scouring through a patient's meditation. Early list. and often, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I'm curious, um, maybe, you know, we, we talked about a little bit of HMP. Maybe, you know, we could talk a little about the patient themselves. You know, do, do you approach, I mean, there was, I guess a lot of the, the guidelines talk about the different, um, you know, patient populations that, that maybe are at higher risk for idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury, you know, whether that's, you know, um, specifically a patient with type 2 diabetes or chronic liver disease. Um, maybe, I guess, if you could talk about some specific populations that are higher risk and how you approach them. Um, yeah, I, I think there are some demographic risk factors for, for DILI due to certain compounds. For example, uh, valproic acid DILI is common in children. Amoxicillin clavulanic acid DILI is more common in the elderly. You know, for example, you know, if you're over the age of 70, you take uh, augmentin, which is amoxicillin clavulanic acid, your risk is much higher than somebody under the age of 20. And then, you know, uh, underlying liver disease is a risk factor for DILI due to compounds like, for example, isoniazid. That's well recognized, right? And uh, so that's one, you know, sort of the age. Generally speaking, gender is not thought to be a risk factor for death. You know, when you look at these papers, you see 60% uh, of the patients are women, but to most part, uh, female gender is not a risk factor for death. Okay. Uh, we talked about elder age. You know, the race and ethnicity is, is important. You know, we are seeing... Uh, Clustering of drug-induced liver injury due to, for example, phenytoin is predominantly in African Americans. And whether it is uh, whether uh, whether they have a higher susceptibility or whether there is more usage of these compounds in certain demographics, I do think it's both. Uh, when we do the uh, HLA uh, analyses in, uh, for example, anti-epileptics between, you know, in whites versus African-American, I think there are different types of relationships in terms of which HLA is a risk factor. So I think there is a biologic basis for this relationship, but I think there is also related to just the trends of practice. You know, I just think though there may be disparities here Anti-epileptics, the, the new anti-epileptics are much safer than uh, uh, than the older one, like for example, phenobarbital or isoniazid compared to those, the newer ones like gabapentin are much safer. And yet I worry that there is disparities in who's getting the new safer ones. You know, that's something that needs to be carefully examined as well. And uh, and those are sort of the risk factors. And I think non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, I think there, it, I think it is a risk factor for DILI, but it's not fully evaluated yet, you know. Uh, but we are seeing epidemiological signals to say NAFLD is a risk factor for DILI. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I guess moving sort of down the figure one, you know, I guess we've talked about history, physical, you know, the patient themselves, herbal dietary supplements. Then it gets to, you know, calculating the R value, which um, I don't think I'm going to spend a, a ton of time with just because I think we all have like apps that can help us like MedCalc, help us calculate and put us into these different buckets of like hepatocellular mixed and cholestatic. Um, but I did, I guess, want to get into like the actual, you know, lab evaluation that, you know, we, we would perform once we're maybe in these different buckets. Um, so it looks like for hepatocellular mixed, uh, it, the lab evaluation, I guess the initial first line test, you know, is pretty very similar and I guess kind of straightforward, like making sure you rule out like acute viral hepatitis, um, you know, autoimmune hepatitis serologies, abdominal ultrasound. I guess I'm curious about these sort of second line tests that we see. Um, I feel like maybe I'll just say, I'm curious how you approach, you know, which of these to send um, and in which clinical scenarios for like, you know, ceruloplasma or some of these less common um, viral uh, etiologies. So I guess you know, like, so it's really that's why I think in the practice guideline we set case by case. The clinicians are smart; they know. Um, the one thing I suggest is um, I remember when I was a fellow at Emory, we had an acute liver failure, and somebody ordered ferritin. Guess what? It was seventy thousand. What do you expect in acute liver failure? Ferritin is going to be high. <laughs> and then of course, I mean, somebody wanted to order this and that. Uh, so, but having said that, I mean, I, I think uh, there are some things that you order, you know, viral hepatitis A and A, anti smooth muscle antibodies, so on and so forth, making sure that, the, especially if it's in patient, they don't have heart failure, you know, those sort of things. But other, otherwise, you know, cellulopasmin, for example, if you have evidence of hemolysis or if you have psychiatric illness under the age of 45. And if other things are just not lining up, or for example, you've excluded everything, and uh, and then Hep E, especially in the Midwest area where there are a lot of swine forms, you could have acute hepatitis C, and I think you just have to use some of those uh, additional information to order those things. And if, for example, if you have lymphadenopathy, atypical lymphocytes, you're going to be doing EBV testing and CMV. I think you just have to take the totality for these sort of the second line testing. Yeah, yeah. And then it looks like for like cholestatic liver injury, um, you know, when you have that low R value less than two, you know, the evaluation is quite different. Um, it's really, I guess, more aimed initially at, um, you know, abdominal imaging. Uh, are there... What, I guess what are the different etiologies I guess you're more worried about, like a cholestatic you know, liver injury pattern. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the key things, the good abdominal imaging is really critical. And then I think, uh, so in a head of the pancreatic cancer, bile duct strictures and the stone disease, more importantly, infiltrative disorders, you know, whether it's a sarcoid and you know, in South or just the, you know, uh, liver metastases, those are sort of the things that we always should exclude. Uh, another is just the heart failure, you know, especially have uh, right heart failure, you have congestion, that's another thing. And uh, just the thorough medication history, because what seemed like straightforward, you know, um, you know, they may be taking other medications that you're not picking up, that's not readily evident on the medalist. And so, and then I guess for, for both of these classes, um, you know, maybe I spent a little bit of time with, you know, when to get a liver biopsy. Um, I think a lot of times, I think it's easy to send off tests that we know we're going to come back, but I think liver biopsies are always, I mean, I guess give me pause uh, just because it's, it's a little more invasive. Um, and so I guess the, I think there was a little bit of guidance in the paper about, you know, in hepatocellular cases or cholestatic cases when the order liver biopsy. I guess, how do you approach this, you know, in like a clinical setting? Um, I mean, you know, liver biopsy, whether it's for DILI or, uh, or for NAFLD, just the two basic premise. One, if there's a diagnostic uncertainty, okay, mm -hmm. then you want to do a biopsy to help you with diagnosis. 
Okay. Uh, in case of Dilly, you know, uh, oftentimes what happens is we see patients with cholestatic. They had an ERCP, and then somebody said, "Well, they may be in a stone." We, we, you know, we did some sweeping. We did the sphincterotomy. They're still cholestatic. You have no idea whether it is drug induced or it's just a resolving, you know, bile duct. That's one. I think you may be able. To, that's. I'm just giving an example. Mm-hmm. In the hepatocellular space, the big dilemma is autoimmune, whether this is. Because sometimes you have uh, ANA and anti-smooth muscle antibody as epiphenomena, and you have jaundice. And you know how you're going to distinguish. Sometimes you just have to do a biopsy to see if it looks like autoimmune hepatitis. Then you can give steroids. So that's one. The second is just the progn- prognostication. You know, in acute liver failure, uh, sometimes we do a biopsy to see the extent of necrosis. That just gives you an idea. The same thing in nafoldeal, you know, whether you have advanced fibrosis and so forth. And in case of cholestatic, you know, the reason you want to do a biopsy is to see if there is profound duct loss or is this bland cholestasis. If it is bland cholestasis, you can tell the patients it's just a matter of time, it's going to get better. You know, whereas ductopenia, then, you know, maybe uh, they may be, remain jaundiced, they may get the secondary biliary cirrhosis. So broadly, those two... Uh, um, categories where you would consider a liver biopsy. It's actually, it's really helpful. Sometimes I think, um, you know, as a GI fellow, I, you know, uh, when we get the path reports back, it's hard to know exactly, you know, what am I looking for? A lot of times they might describe the findings, but not give you an impression. But um, I think that was really helpful just to... Yeah, I'll tell you one thing, though, is if you see mixed pattern of liver injury, you know, there, there are not very many things that do mixed pattern. You know, for example, somebody's ALT is 500, but also ALPHOS is 400. There aren't very many things. That's when your antenna should go up. You know, the same thing on a liver biopsy. They talk about, good pathologists will say, you know, there are eosinophils I'm seeing. I'm seeing lobular hepatitis or, you know, bile duct injury. Good you know, pathologists should be able to just sort of say, hey, this this looks like Dilly, and then you should just, you know, patch, you should uh, connect it to clinical uh, history. I had a, a small question. You'd mentioned uh, anti-smooth muscle antibody, positive in AIH, positive in Dilly. Do you put any stock in the degree of difference of elevation? That's a question that often comes up clinically, you know, is one much higher than the other? Can you tell them apart that way? You know, generally speaking, um, in, you know, high tight or anti-smooth muscle antibody tends not to be an epiphenomenon. If you're seeing ASMA 1 in 160, I, I think it requires your attention. Uh, you can see up to 1 in 640 dilutions of ANA as an epiphenomena, especially in a NAFLE type thing. But I would go beyond ANA, anti-smooth muscle antibody, into paying attention to globulin. I think there is just that beautiful, you know, total protein minus albumin. Many times we just don't pay attention to it. There is just a lot of value that globulin fraction. I think that's, you can get a lot of value there. Another thing though is, uh, interestingly, we have not published this yet, Nitrofurantoin, which is sort of the prototype for autoimmune type liver injury, AST seems to be higher than ALT. You know, all other cases, ALT is higher than AST, but in that particular instance, ASC, AST seems to be higher as well. That's one thing we're trying to study more. What's the importance of that? Thank you, Tim. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I, was kind of new to me, um, but I, I thought it was interesting is there's a really, there's a big section in the, the review guidelines about causality and, and really trying to determine causality um, in these cases. Maybe, I guess, maybe you could speak to maybe the importance of causality and, and how, you know, we, should, I guess, ways we could go about, you know, confirming it or, or determining what the likelihood of causality is. Um, you know, there are, Sometimes it's very straightforward. 
you have a healthy patient, takes amoxicillin clavulanic acid, gets jaundice, you stop it, they get better. But where it becomes complicated is polypharmacy. Somebody gets put on a new antihypertensive and an antibiotic. You know, then you scratch your head and they also have a few other things going on. Hospitalized patients, multiple medications, where it becomes complicated. So especially this becomes important for drug development. If somebody gets jaundice in clinical trial, you want to know that's from the study medication, not from something else. Because a case of jaundice can kill a compound. You know, it can cause, you know, half a billion dollar worth of damage for a compound development. So there are instruments. The one we have in the practice guideline is called RUCAM. You know, this is about maybe you know, 30 year old instrument, it has multiple domains. You go by, you know, for example, duration of exposure, re-challenge, competing ideologies, risk factors, so on and so forth. It just gives you uh, categories, you know, unlikely, possible, probable. Uh, but we, in our drug-induced delivery network, we depend on what's called a uh, expert consensus opinion. Uh, but regardless, I think end of the day, it is about appropriate temporal relationship, number one. Number two is the excluding competing ideologies. That's really what it comes down to, you know. Uh, but you have some exceptions. Generally speaking, delay happens in about first to 12 to 16 weeks of a compound being started. Then occasionally you have compounds that can cause delay after a couple of years. For example, nitrofurantoin. You can be on it for two years and then boom, you can get jaundiced. Another one big example is Tolvaptan. That is the one that's uh, used for hyponatremia and adult polycystic kidney disease. You can have this delay up to 18 months and we don't fully understand what is about. But generally speaking, you know, it's about 12 to 20 weeks after you start a medication is... Uh, is where delay happens. What that means for you in the clinic is when you ask them, hey, how long have you been on metoprolol? Yeah, I've been on it for two years. Not likely. Right. You know, if somebody says, you know, I just got put on this antidepressant six weeks ago, you know, you need to probe more. And then also at the liver talks, uh, there, is great, there is the likelihood score. What they have done is what is the likelihood a compound is known historically to cause dilly? That just gives you confidence. You know, if you have, if somebody has been put on a compound within the last month, but that's never been reported to cause dilly, well, it still can happen, but not likely. So it is the likelihood score also can be helpful, but it's on Liver Talks website. A short section of, of the guidelines is, is sort of devoted to, to treatment, um, which, I mean, maybe we could say it's as easy as just saying stop the offending agent. Uh, but I guess what's the what's the typical time course for that we should expect? You know, liver chemistries to come down, or you know, for you know, bilirubin to to decrease. Like, when do we sort of think maybe this isn't the the cause of um, this initial liver injury? Um, you know, a, a typical case of hepatocellular jaundice from Dilly. Once you, comp once you stop the, uh, the compound, jaundice should improve and resolve within next four to eight weeks or so. You may still have lingering AST and ALT. Um, but remember, you know, the papers we describe is median duration to normalizing bilirubin. That means that only half the people. Then you have like an outliers on other, either side. Right. As I said, in cholestatic dilly, uh, you know, bilirubin can remain high for up to 18 months with itching and so forth. Uh, but I, I just, you know, like any other case of liver dysfunction, you know, bilirubin is important, but pay attention to INR. You know, if INR is normal or improving, that should give you com comfort that the patient is stable. And then, of course, you know, uh, if somebody is a cirrhotic, are they developing ascites? Are they developing kidney failure? Of course, those sort of things are important to watch out as well. Yeah. And it seemed like um, maybe as a, there was a section in there about like, I guess the emerging 
um, prevalence of like immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, especially I think <laughs> maybe plague the gastroenterologist in, in many different areas, whether it's like colitis or specifically for this case, hepatotoxicity. Um, I don't know, do these, um, do you think about, you know, this class differently or, you know, do they present differently? Like do the LFTs rise in a different way or I, I don't know, um, how do you see you know, um I mean, if you ask me today, uh, two major classes, let me back up. The, for gastroenterologists, uh, you know, azathioprine, Imuran that we use in our IBD patients and autoimmune hepatitis, I think that causes really more frequent. And I think in the Iceland study, that's in the order of one in 1250 or something. That's pretty high for Dili, but totally manageable. Like thing with azathioprine is that patients are stable on a stable dose of Imuran, but you double it, and boom, they get Dili. You know, there is this sort of a dose escalation related Dili with azathioprine. And then you can you can go back to the old dose, or you can switch to six MP, and you can manage them. And of course, you have to test for TPMT genotype, etc. cetera. Uh, so then the tyrosine kinase inhibitors—that's one big class for us because there are close to twenty of them that have been approved for different cancers. The other is the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Tyrosine kinase inhibitors cause elevated LFTs, elevated liver function, liver enzymes and then also cause hepatocellular injury. Uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, the same thing. It's hepatocellular. Interestingly, jaundice seems to be very rare. In the paper that we published from MD Anderson, I think the incidence of jaundice was under 5%, which was sort of puzzled me because the, you know, it's like auto, it is immune type liver disease, elevated AST, ALT, uh, and they respond to steroids. Sometimes you have to use mycophenolate cell set, but jaundice is rare. And the problem with immune checkpoint inhibitor related DILI is it's, I don't think it causes liver failure, but it actually leads to disruption of their uh, immunotherapy because they no longer can take that. Either you can take that or you have to dose reduction. Sort of, I would call this sort of a collateral damage. Um, right. not directly like a liver failure. Right, okay. yeah, yeah. And, and briefly, you know, 20% of patients with DILI get steroids and there are no good guidelines on how, when to use steroids. If you have suspicion of autoimmune liver disease, whether it is drug-induced or if it is de novo that you can't exclude, I think immunosuppression via steroid trial is very fair. And other instances, hepatocellular, where patients are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's fair as well. There are, there are case reports and case series where uh, steroids have dramatically improved, you know, Dili, otherwise that didn't make sense. You know, I think we reported cases where uh, it was sort of the central, not autoimmune-like Dili. It's a sort of a centrilobular necrosis, bile duct injury, but but the enzymes were not getting better. So a trial of bidesonide boom dramatically improves, and I think these are reported in the literature. So I think you could try a steroid course in such instances. How how quickly do you go to that? How patient do you have to be? Do you are you guided by a clinical course, synthetic function? before you start saying, I'm treating the patient, not necessarily the numbers, even though the numbers are getting worse. You know, I, I mean, I, I think there are similarities to how, how acute autoimmune hepatitis responds to steroids. If you have treated acute AIH inpatient, you know, when you put them in steroids, you see dramatic response in 72 hours. Mm. You know, so you start seeing ALT, I, I call it like melts away, 1,000 to 600 to 300. Yeah. You know, if your DILI is responding, that's sort of how you see it as well. We recently proposed a trial to NIH. They decided not to fund it. But our in that protocol, what we proposed is the same as what you do for acute alcap. 40 milligrams of prednisone slash prednisolone for 28 days and then rapid taper. 
but that's what we propose, but never been studied. So I would just sort of say uh, you taper based on uh, the clinical course and how desperate we are to treat the patient. I think in a lot of these cases, you know, um, we, you know, LFTs will, will, will go up. Uh, we hopefully get on liver tox, find the right med. We stop it and LFTs are coming down, patient stable. You know, we're happy with their synthetic function and we're anxious to, um, you know, perhaps sign off on, on this inpatient consult. Um, I guess, how do you, uh, how do you follow these patients up? Like what's the, uh, do they have to be seen by a gastroenterologist or um, if you do see them, you know, how long will you wait um, until you see them in clinic to, to sort of let these numbers come down and that we're comfortable at all? You know, there are just two relevant points I want to make. One is what's called chronic dilly. That means that you have acute liver injury, but that sort of led to chronic chronicity, that sort of chronic liver injury. Uh, we call it chronic dilling. I think if you sort of look at our own data at 12 months, about 10% people still have elevated liver tests. I think it's a matter of controversy whether it is it is yet to resolve, slow to resolve, or it's progressive. We don't know that. There is an old paper from UK with diclofenac, you know, where it said after diclofenac acute injury, a third of patients continue to have progressive injury. I don't think we've been able to reproduce that. That's sort of the chronic injury. Then you have chronic hepatitis, meaning they don't really present with this acute injury, but they just come with this chronic thing. So the typical compounds are nitrofurantoin, minocycline, hydralazine, sometimes statins, when you, and diclofenac. If you biopsy them, what you see is chronic hepatitis, like you know, chronic viral hepatitis. Sometimes it could even be uh, cirrhosis. In the nitrofurantoin paper that we are writing, the long-term usage of nitrofurantoin, 40% have either bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, 40%. So, uh, and, you know, it's, I think it's one that needs a black box uh, warning on the label. But just going back to... To your question, you know, I think it's worthwhile to, if they're rapidly improving at some point, you know, whether it is depending on you know how severe the injury is, uh, but it's certainly a follow-up with the gastroenterologist to make sure they're going in the right direction. Oftentimes, patients have questions, you know, which medicines can I take or not take, you know, uh, and uh, you know that's. And even the primary care uh, providers have a question, right? If your DILI is from an antihypertensive, which can I use? You know, those sort of things as well. So I think for a length of time, having GI follow-up, I think would be helpful in managing these patients. Is there a, sorry, just one question on DILI. Is there a risk of progression to ALF? I mean, what is the endpoint that we're worried about beyond slow progression to, to cirrhosis and what are warning signs as we follow them if the numbers aren't dropping or seem to be going not in the right direction? I mean, you know, really this is sort of the INR climbing up. You know, INR climbing up is sort of the major tip off once it starts to sort of go to especially jaundiced patient, you know, bilirubin over 10, INR goes to 1.8, 2.0, that's when your transplant uh, hepatologists just need to know about the patient. We, sometimes we get a biopsy in those patients to see extent of necrosis. And if the necrosis is under 50%, you know, we feel, you know, this is a patient that's going to tease and hover around, but eventually will turn around. Also in the practice guideline, uh, there is a nomogram that we developed with the University of North Carolina uh, that is uses MELD score, albumin, as well as Charlson index. What we found is that sort of a severe liver injury in, in a otherwise healthy adult is tolerated better than minor liver injury in somebody with a lot of comorbidities. You know, small things can tip them off. And it may not, the cause of death may not be from liver failure, but nonetheless, patients will die. 
And if for a patient or a family, they don't care, right? What's the cause of death as long, you know, so, so I think that's another thing is sort of the comorbidities matter. You know, we tend to get focused just on bilirubin, this and that. But, you know, a, somebody with COPD, bad COPD, you know, cholestatic delay from amoxicillin clavulanic acid is enough to tip them over. Mm-hmm. You know, now all of a sudden you have two organ injury, right? You got lungs and liver. And then you got, you know, at that age, and I think those, so Charlson index, meaning more than two comorbid illnesses, dramatically increases your risk of dying. Wow. Okay. Okay. This was, this is excellent. Um, <laughs> this is really great. Um, so uh, I, uh, I feel like we can, I, you are really a, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, um, you know, drug-induced liver injury. Thank you. Um, I, I guess the last the last question I have for you is, you know, I know I, you guys are always, I mean, you're always working on tons of different projects, lots of different interests. Or is there something right now that you're working on that sort of is, you know, keeping you up at night or that you're thinking deeply about or like a, a project you're interested in? I mean, a lot of our interest is now in defining the genetic risk for uh, for drug-induced liver injury. When we started this journey, we thought we would find risk factors that are across all compounds. We thought we would pick up a genetic hit that would just say, you know, person is at risk for all DILI. Turns out that was just oversimplification. So we have to go compound by compound now. You know, that's really where we are. So um, the latest disappointment to me is a bit was nitrofurantoin. We have about 100 cases. We have done deep look at their genetics, and I was hoping there would be just a, this big GWAS hit. Really not. Still, we have few HLA risk factors, but the effect size is 2.03. That You know, it's not going to change the practice, at least not right now. So I think that's one, defining genetic risk. The next is we are working on is sort of the model systems to test the risk. You know, for example, uh, the very exciting project we are doing now is patients who had delay from certain compounds. We bring them back and we take their cells and we create organoids from them. So patients who had isoniazid hepatotoxicity we bring them back, we take their cells, their skin biopsies, their fibroblasts, their mon- monocytes to create hepatocytes and biliary epithelial cells and sinusoids to create these hepatic organoids. And now we have actually a sort of a mini liver from that person. So we can start dosing and studying. I think that's sort of the next exciting thing that's being done. But I think that's sort of, once again, though, this is sort of, bedside back to bench because the patients are helping you know we are using their their material to build their mini organs right that is a absolutely fascinating (laughs) um so we have kept you (laughs) longer than (laughs) we said so i just want to say um truly thank you thank you so much for your time and um i uh i really hope I know our listeners, <laughs> I think, got, got more than they bargained for with this episode because I, I know that I did. Um, so I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Nice meeting both of you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. 
The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.